People are often very excited, and when I tell them what I do, they say, boy, I wish I had school like that. I've seen that something needs to be radically reformed in the way we do learning. That's part of the goal of this whole podcast, is to talk about what kind of changes need to be made. Welcome to Education X.0, where we dissect, analyze, and discuss education in its current form and how it can evolve to better serve us in the future. I'm A.J. Webster. I'm the co-founder of the Sycamore School in Malibu, which I helped run for five years. And before that, I was a teacher for over 15 years in the classroom. I taught kids from kindergarten through high school in subjects ranging from chemistry to Latin to phonics. I'm also a graduate of Rice University, and I have a master's in educational leadership and policy studies from Cal State Northridge. I'm Leslie Wake Webster, and I'm a graduate of Princeton University's Teacher Preparation Program. I'm an English teacher turned TV writer producer working in Los Angeles. My credits include American Dad, New Girl, and the NBC sitcom Perfect Harmony, which I created. We have very different careers. We do. One of us works in an irrational, emotion driven field where good ideas get canceled while mediocre ones hang around forever. And the other works in TV. Yeah, we are also parents of two boys, a ninth grader and a sixth grader. And we both have mothers and grandmothers who were teachers. Right. My grandmother taught in the last one-room schoolhouse in Illinois. Talk about Education 1.0. Right. If you think about education evolving and upgrading like computer software, Education 1.0, that's the traditional model we all grew up with. Old school school. Very little difference, honestly, between a classroom in 1890 and 1990. Maybe some hygiene differences. And fewer physical beatings. Well, actually, I got paddled by a teacher in, in 85, so... So, not that much difference. <laughs> not really. Both are about the teacher being in charge and driving what you learn. The content comes from copyrighted textbooks and the students' passive, so students in this system are sitting in rows and they're taught in masses. Right. If you're lucky, maybe one radical teacher puts the uh, desks in a horseshoe so it feels like an actual (laughs) conversation. Probably your hippie English teacher. Overall, it's a very industrial model. Right. And that's not an accident. There's a great documentary called Most Likely to Succeed that explains the link between factories and education. Basically, the titans of industry like Ford and Rockefeller needed to know that they could count on a factory worker from one town being able to do the same thing as a factory worker from another town. So they asked 10 college and private school presidents to get together and standardize the curriculum that everyone would follow. The Committee of 10. They're the reason we take biology in 10th grade and chemistry in 11th grade. Because in 1892, 10 white men said, this is what people should learn and when they should learn it. (laughs) All with the eye toward getting people ready to work in the workplace that is obedient and cooperative factory workers. Or, if you're wealthy, to go to college and then be a manager or an owner. Either way, it was about getting people ready to work in the world created by the Industrial Revolution. Sir Ken Robinson also gives a great TED Talk on this. We'll provide a link in the resources at the end. So in Education 1.0, learning is a one-way process. Teachers have the knowledge, and students receive it. Um, Students are receptacles. They're asked to receive, respond, and regurgitate. Memorize the state capitals. Recite the prologue to the Canterbury Tales. Define Brownian motion. I mean, how many of us have had the experience of learning something for a test and not being able to recall it days later? Kids do a memory dump and then it's gone. That's what happens when you prioritize memorization over understanding. If something's not meaningful or relevant to us, we forget it. Especially if the only reason we learned it was to please the teacher or our parents by extension. So Education 1.0, there's a belief that teachers or school administrators know the most important things for students to learn. It's not a matter of students' interests. Those don't count. Right, and that makes sense for most of history. First, we all know that kids don't know what they don't know. Take your grandmother in that one-room schoolhouse in Illinois. 
She's a functioning adult who's a responsible member of the community. She knows way better than a six-year-old what will be necessary to survive and to thrive. It used to be easier for adults to know that. There were simpler technologies and the pace of change wasn't as rapid. This led to what's called the essentialist curriculum. Also known as, I had to read Romeo and Juliet, so you do too. It's based on tradition. And on what many people think of as the essential discipline, so math, natural science, history, foreign language, literature. But we have to ask, is this information actually essential? So here's where I pause for people to clutch at their pearls. Including me. I'm honestly a little scandalized every time you ask that question, even though I think it needs to be asked. But it goes against my programming. I was good at school. I was taught to respect my teachers and to work hard. And no one's saying not to do that, but let's make sure we're working hard at the right tasks. That requires asking tough questions about what is essential. Intellectually, that makes sense. But emotionally, it feels wrong. Rebellious. Maybe dangerous. Of course, our beliefs about school are programmed early, and most of us never question them. Probably because once you're done with school, you don't have to think about it until you become a teacher yourself. And it's worth noting that most people who go into teaching do it because they liked school and were good at it. Like me. It's a self-perpetuating cycle, and probably the reason most teachers aren't cool. We were the nerds and the (laughs) goody-two-shoes. People who hated school or found great success in spite of it rarely become teachers. They write off school as some kind of torture they had to survive, and then they were allowed to go out and use their real skills in the real world. Either way, most adults don't think much about school until they have children. At which point, there's a lot at stake. This is your child, and you don't feel like gambling with their future. You want to make sure that you give them every opportunity to succeed, so you stick with tradition. Even if it isn't perfect, at least it's familiar. And I think there's a tendency to romanticize the pain of the past. Like, oh, it's a rite of passage to be bored. Sure, teenagers are going to hate everything no matter what, so they might as well hate school, etc., etc. Yeah, there's a lot of inertia. It takes a major disruption for parents to question the way we do things in school. Right, like COVID-19 causing us all to have to stay home all day. Suddenly, parents are asked to be teachers, or at least teachers' assistants. And for the first time, parents are seeing how their kids spend the day. And frankly, a lot of it is boring, irrelevant, not useful, and painful to learn. It's making a lot of people go, there has to be a better way. That's one of the reasons why I, or why we, started this podcast, to raise awareness about how education can and should change. Which has happened before. The advent of the internet created a huge shift in schools to a new paradigm, or at least in some schools. Right. Education 2.0. Education 2.0 recognizes that learning doesn't necessarily have to have a top-down structure. Mm -hmm. Students are expected to engage in conversation with their teacher, with each other, with content and sources who are available to them through the vastly expanded reach of the web. It's a little like the Protestant Reformation, the recognition that students can have a direct relationship with their own learning, and it doesn't have to have an intermediary to intercede for you. Mm -hmm. Instead of the teacher being your high priest, they are more of a facilitator or a guide. The teacher doesn't have to know the answers. They can be the person who says, what a great question. What do you think we can find out? It's collaborative. That's one of the real hallmarks of Education 2.0. The four C's. That's a thing, right? Correct. Communicating, collaborating, critical thinking, and co-creating. Essentially what we all do when we work on a project. Even if it's an individual personal project, there are very likely moments where we seek the input and expertise of others. In the real world, we're more often to work on teams. Knowing how to collaborate is one of the keys for the 21st century. 100%. In my work as a sitcom writer, I typically write with 5 to 15 other people. We're all pitching stories and ideas, and they build on each other. 
Then it goes to a production team of 100 people that turns that script into an episode of TV. At least 100, and it's all about communication and co-creation. There's the art department, wardrobe, transpo, camera, actors, editors, sound mixers. Even the people who work in isolation are still part of this much larger ecosystem. And in my experience, the ones who are good at the four C's rise the fastest. So learning how to give and receive feedback from a peer isn't just a, quote, nice-to-have skill that comes in second after you've got all this academic content loaded into your brain. It's vital, and so Education 2.0 really recognizes that fact. The value of inquiry and conversation. And making use of technology to recognize that learning happens everywhere. It's not just a, a thing that happens in the classroom. This is where we get to asynchronous learning or flipped classrooms where People send home the lecture and people can learn from whatever source and then come into school to collaborate on problems or or projects. Because the more complicated part is the part where you do need other people usually. Um, Some of our listeners might be at schools that are doing Education 2.0 right now. A lot of schools are stuck in Education 1.0 but trying to move towards 2.0. What they should really be doing is trying to plan and implement for Education 3.0. I have to stop you, okay? This is... (laughs) I, this is too much. I am speaking up for the parents who are working from home during quarantine, just trying to get themselves and their kids through the day. It's already so hard. There's so much to think about. And you're saying there's more. There's level 3.0. There's more. But it's not necessarily bad. Whether we're ready or not, the world keeps changing. Think back to 2007, when today's high school graduate was starting kindergarten. The world was pretty different. We had iPods, but no smartphones. Drone pilot wasn't a job, for example. That's true. YouTuber wasn't a thing you could be. No one was talking about big data analysts. But in those 13 years, the worlds have changed in ways none of us could predict it, and now we take for granted. Right, and maybe a few people, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Miss Cleo, saw it coming, but I didn't. And the school system really didn't. Now... Thinking about your child starting kindergarten this fall, in 13 years, what's the world they'll be entering? Teaching them the content and skills of today won't be enough. And teaching them the curriculum from 1892 definitely won't. That's why we have to think about Education 3.0. Which is what you tried to do in founding the Sycamore School. Yeah, we tried. I don't know if we fully achieved Education 3.0. I'd like to think we were hitting Education 2.5. We were engagement-based and maker-based and project-based. We focused on a lot of these skills, and we'll talk about those in upcoming podcasts. But people are often very excited, and when I tell them what I do, they say, boy, I wish I had school like that. I've seen that something needs to be radically reformed in the way we do learning. That's part of the goal of this whole podcast, is to talk about what kind of changes need to be made. So ideally, 3.0 is everything in Education 2.0, plus connectivity, self-direction, project. Content's out there. It's freely available and readily available. I don't have to buy a textbook. Information is ubiquitous. Right. I can go to YouTube and learn from experts in any subject, physics, ethnomusicology, or how to do a perfect smoky eye. Is that something you care about? No, but I could one day. And (laughs) if and when I need to master a smoky eye, there are so many teenage influencers waiting to give me a tutorial. Which brings up the key facet of Education 3.0. It's really interest-driven. I think a lot of people might have a bit of an emotional allergic reaction to the idea that students should and could pursue things just because they're interested in them. It goes back to those ideas we have about school, that school is suffering and it has to be painful in order to build character until you're old enough to start your, quote, real life. At which point, if you have any control over your circumstances, you spend as much time as possible pursuing things that interest you. Like fantasy football? It's a great example of people willingly doing all kinds of math and engaging deeply with probability because they find something interesting. Being interested, enthusiastic, and curious is critical. It ups the chances that you'll engage in a problem, deal with problem-solving, creativity, and innovation. 
So our motivations matter. Yes, yes. Real-world necessity is also a great motivator. When a kid wants to become a YouTuber, she figures out how to do a video. She figures out how to do video editing, not because a teacher said to do it, not because it's an assignment, not because it'll be graded, but because it's relevant to accomplishing the goal that is personally meaningful. And that example highlights a huge difference from previous paradigms. In Education 3.0, learners are creators. Right. They're creating knowledge artifacts and sharing them through social networks. Connectivity is a big deal. On the web, through social networks, we have access to the learning of others in our field of interest, and they, in turn, can check out our work. Remix it, comment on it, share it, improve upon it. It sounds a lot like our four C's from earlier, collaborating, communicating, contributing, and co-creating. Yes, there's a lot of four C's, actually, and it's one of the things that people talking about 21st century education love to talk about. Ironic, since we're in education uh, field and all these C's. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like we've been graded poorly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but connecting, collectives, curating, um, you'd mentioned co-creating. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all different things that are important to a, a culture of collective inquiry. Side note, I usually think of curating as picking the pieces to show in an art museum. Right, but curating is... This is a side note. Hmm. Um, (laughs) Curating is a product of collective learning. It's about making choices from an abundance of knowledge and resources. It's what's most relevant and what's most important. And to be clear, the teacher is not necessarily the one making that decision. No, that's one of the things that's important about Education 3.0. Teachers are part of the learning collective, and in some ways they're expert learners. That's their role. But they may or not be the expert contributor on a subject. Which is fair. We can't all be experts at everything. So what teachers need to be good at is meddling, nudging, provoking, challenging, encouraging, and hopefully inspiring students to dig deeper. Right, as well as modeling responsible participation and revealing their own learning struggles. It's, it's a far cry from when I did my student teaching in Pennington, New Jersey in the 90s. I remember being terrified that my AP English students would ask a question I couldn't answer. Did they ever? Constantly. I got very good at saying, I don't know, but how do you think we could figure that out? Yeah, you were ahead of your time. (laughs) I was four years older than the kids I was teaching. They were on to me. You don't know more than us. You're just slightly older and less cool. They weren't wrong. The goals of Education 3.0 are pretty lofty. Almost no one's achieving it yet in reality, yet we need to be striving for it, not just to meet the needs of industry, but also to ensure the best possible student experience. One that is self-actualized, self-maximized. Otherwise, we're leaving a lot of potential on the table. But right now, I bet a lot of people care less about maximizing potential and more about having a place for their kid to go six hours a day, just to get out of the house and interact with other humans. That's true. COVID has reminded us of another vital function of school, the care and feeding of children. Mm -hmm. It's a place for them to be while their parents do things like go to work. There's an element of human connection, too. School is literally and figuratively high touch. I think we all have a new appreciation for that. But it's important that when we finally go back to school, to remember the experience we've had at home. Think about the methods your child's school uses. Are they preparing them for the future? But we can't exactly future-proof students. No, but we can help them learn how to learn, and that's what's at the heart of education 4.0. No! No! <laughs> No, I I can't handle any more .0s. This is the last one so far. I don't believe you. You literally called this education podcast X.0, which at first I thought stood for hugs and kisses, but now I realize it's X as a variable representing an unknown number. Why would you think a podcast about education is called hugs and kisses? Because we're married and we love each other. And maybe Hershey's will hear about it and we'll get a lifetime supply of Hershey's kisses. Valid reasons. Strange, but valid. But really... um, While there are infinite versions of education ahead of us, Education 4.0 is the last one we're going to explore today. If so many schools aren't nailing the earlier versions, 
why are we discussing a 4.0? It's in recognition of the larger change that's happening worldwide. The shift to smart technology, information economy, artificial intelligence, and robotics, this is what Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has termed the fourth industrial revolution. So basically, robots rule the world, the worst version of the Transformers movie. Every Transformers movie is the worst version of a Transformers movie. Oh, snap. We just lost people who love Michael Bay. I think I'm okay with that. (laughs) Yeah, in the Venn diagram of people who listen to education podcasts and rabid Michael Bay fans, the overlap has got to be pretty small. So, research by McKinsey Digital revealed that due to the fourth industrial revolution, 60% of occupations could potentially have at least a third of their activities automated. That's a lot of people who have to find something new to do, something that can't be done as well by a computer or a machine. This includes what we've been calling soft skills related to interacting with people, um, engaging in non-traditional or non-linear thought, and being a continuous learner. It's not about knowledge, it's about learning how to learn, and training yourself to be the type of learner who's constantly growing. This whole thing is about process and skills over any particular content. And learning to maximize individual strengths, respecting that students and humans are not alike. Everyone has a different starting point. They learn and absorb differently, uh, and they have different areas of focus. Which means they need to be guided to develop their individual skills rather than taught a set of predefined data. Personalization leads to better outcomes, right? So there's more likelihood that an inherent interest will lead a student to dig deeper into what they're studying. But that also raises a question which is familiar in Education 1.0. How do we know what people need to know? We don't. That's the real trick here. Sorry, Committee of Ten, you tried your best and it worked for almost a century, but we truly can't say with certainty what people will need to know in the coming years. Yet some people, politicians, do say it with great certainty. It's easy to make sweeping statements about education and what kids need to know. Usually it has the word rigor attached to it. Mm. Um, But that's a one-size-fit-all approach that's really utterly failing. COVID homeschool has shown us that that's the case for many kids. Right. School the way we've done it is not creating habits of mind that will solve tomorrow's problems. The gap between what school teaches and what we need as adults is part of the reason you got money to found a school. We had some seed money from an initial funder who worked at Google. And he said, I can hire the best students from the best universities. I can hire the highest grade point averages and the highest tests. But those students are automatons. They wait for you to tell them what to do. They're not entrepreneurial. They can't work together. And while they can solve problems, they don't entrepreneurially seek problems and solve them for themselves. They're just, they're, they're waiting to succeed where someone's telling them what to do. He said, he looked at his son in kindergarten where he was um, being given some triangles and told to make a frog that looks exactly like this. He was in the model where they were trying to get him to comply and follow directions. And our funder said, I can see the beginning point and I can see the end point. I can see how they go from wanting to explore to following directions and trying to do what's right. Um, And that leads them away from entrepreneurial, creative, exploratory, inquiry-based thinking to more of a, a command and control sort of model. Right. Real world problems are sticky and complicated, and there's more than one way to solve them. That's and exactly that is not right. what we have learned in the traditional model. Of that's school. exactly right. And so that's, that's one of the, the things that causes us to have to, to rethink it. And that inspires a lot of what's coming in this podcast is thinking about how do we change from a system that helps kids understand the best way for me to succeed is play a game by someone else's rules and follow someone else's judgment and move to a world where they're more entrepreneurial learners. So to be clear, you're not just complaining about what's wrong with school. 
you have some solutions. I am complaining about what's wrong with school, and I will offer solutions, and a lot of these solutions are ones that we put into practice. What are some things we have to look forward to? Over the course of this podcast, my hope is for us to look at education and, more importantly, learning from a variety of different angles and through a variety of different lenses. The goal is to talk about why things need to change, how they got, how they are, and what are specific changes that I think uh, we could make in learning that would would help kids be ready for um, an unknown and unknowable future. Sounds pretty good. I'm going to listen, and not just because I'm your wife. Thanks to Peter Schlosser, our sound editor, producer, and the composer of our theme music. You can check out his music at paxmusic.com. That's www.paaxmusic.com. Some resources we've referenced today include the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk. You can also find a link to them, plus suggestions for further reading at educationx.com. That's education, the letter X, P-O-I-N-T, the number zero, dot com. 